Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. The gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the health of his church for the need of the world. And this is Paul's main point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, one more time and then several more times this morning as this frames our consideration that the gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the health of the church, for the need of the world. And it may sound obvious to us this morning. We have already sung Martin Luther's Reformation hymn uh, first this morning. Uh, we understand from church history that uh, the word and the centrality of the word was of much import in the Protestant Reformation, and it remains of much import from the life of the church all the way back to the first word spoken uh, to the first humans. Uh, the word is the truth which shapes what the church proclaims. Gospel proclamation shapes ministry expectation. Gospel proclamation serves the health of the church, and as the health of the church is served by gospel proclamation, uh, the world itself benefits. And uh, these are not new considerations for us. These are exactly the considerations uh, that we seek to capture in our mission statement, for instance, that we seek to live Christ's grace and truth so that lives in Dublin and beyond may be transformed by his love. The gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the health of his church, for the need of the world. That's why we value celebrating the gospel, making Christ and his achievements central. That's why we value connecting in community, that church is family, it's corporate, it's not individualistic. It's why we value loving the city, by which we mean not affirming Northwest Columbus as a nice place to live, though it is, but the kind of love which is described in Scripture as agape love, of sacrificial love, of laying down our time and our talents and our treasures uh, for the good and the flourishing of the city. The gospel, though, uh, is God's possession. The gospel is God's possession, which he entrusts to his ministers for the health of his church for the benefit of the world, and the risk is that what sounds obvious is frequently forgotten by the church in Scripture and in church history, that the church generationally is at risk of forgetting this. God, through the Old Testament prophet Micah, warned Old Testament ministers and congregations uh, in verse 11 of chapter 2, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. It's sadly humorous, uh, but God warned his people that uh, a day would come when they would rather hear from a mixologist than a theologist. Paul exhorted his protege, Timothy, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the good and the health of the church and the need of the world. And that is what Paul wants to talk about in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12. The subject is urgent. Uh, I, I feel passionate about it. I don't want you to confuse my passion with anger. I'm not angry about this. Um, but, I, but I need for us to understand this because I do believe that we live in a moment, and perhaps it's every moment in every generation. I don't know. I just don't, I've only lived one life. Uh, but, but I think that we live in a moment where uh, across the broad spectrum of church life, what the church is most interested in is not the gospel. And it is not the gospel that has been entrusted to ministers. In fact, often uh, what is expected for ministers, from ministers is much that is other than gospel proclamation. This is a risk. And so we need Paul's reminder. Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote to pastors about this and about the discord that can sometimes happen between uh, gospel proclamation and the real world experience. He talks about passionate longing after men's conversion, if not fully satisfied. And when are these longings satisfied? Consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment to see the hopeful turn aside, the godly grow cold, professors abusing their privileges, sinners waxing more bold in sin. Are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? Being hopeful, but then turning aside, growing cold, abusing privileges. These are all temptations that I am liable to. These are all temptations that you are liable to. They are not what I want for myself or for us, but what I want for ourselves and for us. And by us, I mean mostly the people in this room, the people within the sound of my voice, the people who are the members of this church, the people of the flock for whom uh, myself and the session are accountable, is for increasing passion for the word, increasing passion for Christ, increasing desire for our friends to hear the gospel, increasing desire that as much as we celebrate the many good things of living in this wonderful corner of the world at this moment in time, that, that we would not think that all that is wonderful about this corner of the world, this moment of time is all that there is, but, but, but that there is more. And, and, and we might derive from everything that we enjoy about the life around us, how much more wonderful life in the next world is to be, because this world is still impacted by sin. It's still corrupted. This is still the world in which creation groans. Chris may be our assistant pastor, like, like some to more than some of you at property and uh, the Florida Gulf Coast and is down this week trying to figure out how to care for it and sent back some rather disturbing pictures of that part of the world. And I asked him what it was like. And he says, creation groans. Creation groans longing for the future. And the gospel is God's possession, which tells us about the present and the future. And so if you would want those things too, then 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 12 helps us to answer the how question. The gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the health of his church, for the need of the world. That's the outline this morning. The gospel first is God's possession. 
In the New Testament world, gospel meant good news about a king. It was a secular uh, word. Uh, we've talked about this before. Good news in, uh, about the Roman king, an heir born uh, in the palace, a legion's victory in some far off place, uh, would be heralded as good news and announced as gospel, as euangelion. And heralds would go out through the uh, empire as evangelists. They would announce good news about their king. And, and all that happened was that the Christians understood uh, that the, the better king had come, uh, that the true king had come, uh, and that the best news needed to be announced. And so we took over the word gospel, and we began to announce it. And Paul describes showing up in this city of Thessalonica, uh, in Acts 17, and he says that it was uh, preached that it was necessary for Christ to suffer uh, and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the king. Christ means king. And the outcome is that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And others who did not respond favorably to the gospel understood the message. They understood that Paul was talking about a different king, a rival king, a king named Jesus, uh, who made a competing claim on the allegiances of the people uh, about which the Roman king would not be happy. And so in order to prove that they were still on side with the Roman king, uh, they started a riot. Uh, they rounded up the few Christians uh, and the Christians uh, paid a uh, 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 financial penalty, uh, and Paul and friends were hastily uh, hustled out of the city. So he and friends had been in the city for only three Sabbath days, which could be anywhere between two to four weeks. So two to four weeks, Paul and friends are preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, and then they need to leave, and the result is that the Thessalonian Christians, who are barely trained, like if, if you've gone to Sunday school like three weeks in a row, you've had more training maybe than some of these Thessalonian Christians. These Thessalonian Christians barely trained are separated from their pastors. And they're facing ongoing pressure from those who understood what Christianity was about and weren't happy about it. Opposition was real and Paul wasn't there. And so you, you could understand a little bit uh, the, the potential for confusion and consternation. Had Paul stirred up hopes and fears and then left when the going got tough? Had he done what some people call the preach and run? It sounds very glamorous. A preach and run. <laughs> Gangster pastors, right? <laughs> Paul stirred up hopes and fears and then left when the going got tough. Maybe the Jesus gospel was just Paul's message. Just the words of a traveling speaker interested in gaining a claim for having a new idea, accumulating some wealth and moving on. And why should these Thessalonian Christians keep taking it on the chin for Jesus if Paul got to scoot away? And so Paul needs to affirm to them very quickly in verses 1 and 2 that their good news about a different king was God's own gospel. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And this word of is important. Uh, It would be uh, easy to read it as the gospel about God. And there are certainly ways to describe the gospel as about God. But this particular word is possessive. Uh, It describes the gospel that belongs to God. The gospel that God owns the gospel that is his. It is his gospel. It is his good news. Uh, It is the same way that Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then down to verse 14 of Mark one. Now, after Jesus was arrested, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel that belonged to God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the son of God preaches the gospel of God. The gospel of God is good news about the son of God. Paul begins his letter to the church in Rome in the same way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. God owns the gospel. The gospel of God has a history, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. God's gospel is about his son, a real royal descendant of a real king, David, and the gospel is about what the son, the king, achieved, verse 4, in that he was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In short, that the Son of God is hailed in power because he is vindicated as the one who has achieved all that salvation required. That the Son won the war against sin and the benefits of the victory of sin are now on display and accessible to the entire world. That that the gospel which God possesses, which he owns, is now available for all kinds of people to believe. Paul says that, that from God they have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He explains famously, in verse 16, that the gospel of God comes with God's power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is God's possession that comes with God's power. Which brings us back to Thessalonians where Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they, Jews and Greeks together, had experienced God's power in the gospel. Verse 4 of chapter 1. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That God's power in the gospel changed the Thessalonians' hearts. Verse 9 of chapter 1, you turned, from, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why belabor the point? It seems so obvious. But it's not so obvious. 
The gospel is God's possession. It's, it, it's what he owns. It's what he gives to the church to share in every place with truth and power. Uh, it is a treasure to be shared, not a treasure to be hoarded. And Paul says, on reflection, after everything that had happened to them in Philippi, where there was another riot and more jail, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But we had, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That resistance to God's gospel does not disprove the truth of God's gospel, nor does resistance to the gospel disprove the power of the, of the gospel. That, that, that rather it shows what is at stake in the gospel. That, that, that in God's gospel, as it is proclaimed, there is a showdown between divine power to change a person's heart and sinful resistance to the gospel. So the Holy Spirit must show up as the gospel is preached so that God's gospel, which he urges to be shared to the churches, is believed on in faith. The gospel is God's possession. And, and, and whatever else we think we must do in church, we must be stewards of the gospel. That, that the gospel is given by God to the church. And he does this through principally the ministry of the word. This is uh, where Paul goes next. It, it's the main point that he wants to make in this section to the Thessalonians, I think. That the gospel is, God, is God's possession entrusted to his ministers. Now, the first century world uh, had a celebrity culture, just like we have a celebrity culture. Uh, they had heroes and heroines. They had influencers. Uh, since not even radio had been invented in the first century, what happened uh, was there was a culture of traveling speakers. Orators traveled from city to city, and they delivered speeches, and they earned applause and cash, and they built reputations, and they moved on. Uh, it was tick walk, not tick talk. <laughs> Speak, cash in, move on. But it was a widely spread cultural film. Now, I'm very, I'm playing very well in the first row. <laughs> It's indescribable, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what Paul needs to do because of the prevalence of this phenomenon is he needs to prove that he is not of that practice. He needs to prove that he is not of the same uh, kind of speaker who would preach and then move on that he is not playing the same game as the influencers of the day. So he teaches about God's entrusting his gospel possession to ministers. That no pastor from that generation onward is an apostle as the way that Paul 
Peter, James, and the others were apostles, but many of the lessons are still applicable to the ministry, that, that many of the expectations are applicable to the ministry. And I think that we need to hear this lesson very much because often actual pastoral ministry is in disrepute, not primarily among the culture, because why should we care what the culture thinks about pastoral ministry, but in disrepute within the church, and possibly more dangerously, in disrepute among those who think they might be called to be pastors. And so it's important to understand that God entrusts his gospel as a stewardship. Stewards never own. Stewards always manage on behalf of someone else. Just as you are a steward of your financial resources, that, that the money, the wealth that you have is God's wealth that he has entrusted to you, so the gospel is God's possession, which he has entrusted to the church. And being a steward of God's gospel shapes three things, Paul says here, ministry approval, ministry motivation, and ministry manner. So approval, when, when, when we entrust people with powerful tools, think about it, from, from medical tools to complex vehicles, we make sure that those people are qualified and approved to use them. And when someone abuses a powerful tool for personal gain, they concurrently abuse the trust that comes with the tool. And so Paul weaves lessons on ministry approval and ministry motivation throughout verses 3 to 8. He says, For our approval does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For our, our appeal does not spring from error. Uh, it's the same word from which we get uh, the word planet. Uh, planets were uh, viewed to wander through the sky. And, uh, and Paul here says, we, we don't preach the gospel as kind of a wandering. We, haven't, we aren't wandering from one truth to another. It's, we're not in error. Impurity, uh, this is an important word because the force of the word here is sexual. And you don't have to read much in church news to, or, or the news generally to understand that spiritual concepts, Christian and otherwise, work at intimate levels. And unscrupulous proclaimers can manipulate the boundary between spiritual intimacy and physical intimacy. Paul says, we didn't do that. The gospel is not a human plan to deceive others. The gospel is God's possession. Paul, Timothy, uh, Silas, and Timothy are approved to share it. It stands to reason that something as powerful as God's gospel requires God's approval to proclaim. Such was the case for Paul and friends. Uh, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And we don't know exactly how Paul experienced this approval. We, don't, we know a couple of things. We know that after his conversion, he spent about three years in Damascus. We don't know much about what happens during those three years. But we know that after those years, uh, he goes up to Jerusalem and he meets the apostle Peter. And so, so perhaps 
uh, his approval process is there. But we also know that 14 years later, he went back to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, and set before the other apostles the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What's interesting, if we don't know the exact the exact experience of approval that Paul is referencing, what we do see is that he keeps seeking validation for it. He keeps making sure that he's on track. He keeps making sure that the gospel that he's preaching, which is God's possession as he takes it from the Jewish world to the Gentile world, is correct and true. God, through his approved apostles, approved Paul's ministry. So allowing that every Christian is called to share the gospel. I put before you the New Testament pattern that proclaimers of the gospel, ministers should be tested before being entrusted with God's gospel, that this is correct and healthy. And with our denomination, as with other denominations, there is a complex examining process for pastors as well as for elders and deacons. And so uh, the application that I want you to do right now is to file this away for the future. That, that at some moment in time, uh, should you move and leave and look for a different church? Or at some moment in time, should I leave and you're on the search committee for the next senior pastor? I, I ask you to reject the, the current version low church practice that ministers don't require training or approval. Because you, you don't do that in so many other places in life. You know, I had a uh, uh, periodic uh, medical exam earlier this week. And I just uh, imagine what would happen if I, I, I went into the exam room and I sit down uh, with the oncologist and he sits down and he's like, hey, Dave, we've got all of your charts and labs here. And this is what we think is going on. And I said, well, that's interesting. Because through the portal, I too have access to my charts and labs and I did some poking around on the internet. And this is what I think is going on. <laughs> do you know, what I, you know what I think he would do? I think he would scoot over on the little rolly stool thing <laughs> because doctors must have amazing core muscles, right? They must scoot around on the little rolly stool thing all the time. And he'd scoot over on the little rolly stool thing and he'd say, I, I went to school for like 700 years. <laughs> and I, I go to conferences all the time. And I, I read books can, that contain syllables that you can't even count. And, and I'm here to tell you what's going on. We do that with doctors. We do that with pilots. Like, I don't volunteer when I get onto the commuter flight at Columbus to walk up to the cabin and say, you know, I, I too have played flight simulator. <laughs> and I am at about 50%. I'd like to give it a go. They'd say that we'd like to give you a go. You wouldn't do it. They wouldn't let you. So why have we gotten to the point where I can talk with a, a 
a ministerial colleague at a gathering and say, well, how did you decide to become a pastor? He's like, well, I just showed up and I told the folks at the cookout that I should be a pastor. And they said, okay, you're the pastor. And I said, well, did you have any training? He's like, no, that came later. Well, then, then what were you doing? Because the gospel is God's possession. The prophet says it's the hammer that breaks the rock of the soul. I, I, I ask you for the future. Don't fall into that trap. I get, I get emails from friends who work in international pastoral training. And, and they say, hey, do you know what the international church is looking for? Pastors who teach the Bible. And I read those things. And then I, I go on the pastor search job board and I read the job descriptions. It's very often not in the first line of what the church wants. Ministry approval, ministry motivation, stewards are motivated to please owners. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Flattery was very much tied to the cultural phenomenon of the tick walkers, uh, where they would, they would walk around and they would use words to try to gain financial advantage. So, th- so it wasn't just like, hey, I think your sweater looks lovely. And by the way, welcome to the first Sunday in sweater season. It's a great Sunday for those of us who need a workout plan, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I love sweater season. So much easier than the gym. Um, it's not that kind of flattery. It's very much tied to the cultural phenomenon of orders ingratiating themselves to wealthy for financial gain. Paul said, we didn't do that. We didn't come as a, with a pretext for greed. We didn't look for glory from people. We're entrusted messengers, and we speak to please God, not men. Because, and did you catch it there? Uh, not only did God approve at the beginning, but God continues to test the messenger. That God's entrusted messengers continue to live before God. In other words, flattering words and greedy motivations will be known to God. That The messenger's interior life is not hidden. And then thirdly, the minister's manner. The minister's manner is opposite of seeking glory from people. Paul describes it in verse 7, which by the way is tricky in the Greek New Testament. And I only mention that to you because I think the trickiness is part of the art here. Uh, It it leads literally uh, like, but we had become like infants among you. And one commentator noted that uh, infants are hardly able to throw their weight around, which is true. But I mean, the metaphor is imperfect because it's as if Paul is writing and he's thinking, well, we're, we came to you and we were unassertive like an infant, but then he pauses and he thinks, well, I've met infants. A hungry infant can dominate a whole room. And so Paul clarifies uh, as a nursing mother caring for her children, that Paul and his friends were gentle and caring not demanding and self-centered. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And they were only together for like two to four weeks. You think, well, well, how could that happen? Well, it happens a lot, right? Like, like if you've ever gone on a short-term mission trip, if you've ever been with people for a short period of time, you realize at the end of that trip, you've become very, uh, those people become very dear to you and you worry about what's going to happen next to them spiritually and what the onward care will be of them. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you, you became dear to us. And our manner with you is the manner of the Lord Jesus. Who, be, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Why? Because he had such affectionate desire for his people that he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, in order to love. Now, surely every minister, myself included, falls short of this standard, but it is held out as a standard. And I think that it critiques at least one strand of ministry, which does seem to be passing from vogue in American evangelicalism, but, but that of the the. Uh, the pastor who's aggressive, you know, and cusses the angry pastor, which seemed to be attractive for a while, but doesn't that seem to map onto the manner of the Lord Jesus? So the minister's manner is shaped by the gospel. And finally, and briefly, that the gospel is God's possession entrusted to his ministers for the health of his church, for the need of the world. So ministers are entrusted with God's gospel to this end, verses 9 to 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. How you, how you, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As mothers, Paul and friends were gentle. As fathers, they exhorted and encouraged. This word encouraged is the same word as the word console, which is what Mary's friends did to her when her brother Lazarus died. If you remember that story from John's gospel, her friends came to console her. And it's, it's interesting uh, that, that Paul picks up the image of father here writing to a Greek church because the Greek conception of fatherhood was different a little bit from the Roman conception of fatherhood. And this we learned from the commentators, but uh, that the Roman conception of fatherhood was very severe and strict. Uh, the, the law of potter familius, you know, that the father who ruled the house and, and could at least legally have charge of life or death over his children. But the Greek conception was that the father was more required to exhort, instruct, and to direct morally how people should live, how the children should live. And so Paul is basically saying that that's the way that we were among you, that we exhorted and encouraged you and told you how to live. And the way that we told you how to live was to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. That Christian conduct is an expected outcome of Christian reception. That believing 
and living are not divorceable from each other, which is not different than what Jesus expected in the Great Commission. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all, not, not the most minimal part, but all that I have commanded you. And, and, and all that Jesus commanded ethically would, would stretch back to all that was commanded in God's law, all that I commanded you about how to walk in a manner worthy of God. Because as Jesus commanded, and as Paul clarifies, the gospel which is God's possession, when believed on, results in membership in a new kingdom. God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul has specific lifestyle areas that he needs to talk to the Thessalonians about, which he will in verses in chapters 4 and 5. And so come back when we talk about chapters 4 and 5, because Paul wants to talk to the church, particularly about how to walk worthy of God in manners of human sexuality, in manners of human friendship, in manners of congregational conduct. These are the areas that he has on tap. But I simply want to conclude with this application that the, the dying kingdoms of the world need Jesus' church, the church that is steward of the gospel that belongs to God. The dying kingdoms of the world need the church to steward the gospel to be healthy. Healthy church witnessing to a dying world. That's our call. That, that, that we, we cannot, it's, it's not enough for us to just believe the gospel for ourselves. It, it's not enough just for us to, to believe the gospel is a good news story that's just for me, but not for my unbelieving neighbor. It, it, it's not enough. And not only is it not enough, Dave saying so, it's, it's Paul's ambition for this church in Thessalonica that he expresses in verse 11 of chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. We're like, well, that's great. Let's have a potluck. We will abound in love for one another and calorically and all of those other things. No, he says, you abound in love for one another and for all. The and for all is the outside world. That the, the, that the more the Father works in you, the, 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 the wonder of the gospel, the more you are going to abound in love for the others who believe the gospel, but also for those who, who don't believe the gospel because they need to believe the gospel. So you may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The return of King Jesus is certain, Paul says. Healthy churches abound in love 
within and for the church and within and for the outside world. This means that the health of the church is not only for the church, but the health of the church is also for the good of the world. Healthy church sharing God's gospel in God's broken world leads to a better world. That's, that's what this is about. And, and if you think, well, the sermon's over, obviously it's over. Dave, you haven't told me anything new this morning. I would say, praise God. I haven't told you anything new this morning. Because I'm not, I'm not supposed to tell you new stuff. I'm supposed to tell you this stuff. This is what ministers of the church are supposed to do to tell you this so that all of us can live according to this so that we grow in love for each other and so that we grow in love for outsiders. So I'm going to give you a moment and, and, and I encourage you to think how, how might God's word be landing for you this morning? Because as I said at the beginning of the sermon, and I did not mean for it to be a throwaway line, that if, if the word is preached and it hasn't landed in your heart, you should probably call me. Like for real, not a joke. You should probably call me. We should probably have a coffee. We should probably figure out why it didn't land. Because what a sad thing it would be to, ha- to hear the word and not be soft towards it, but to become increasingly hard towards it. The, the sower preached and the seed fell on many soils. Many soils. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.